From Brock Media, this is Never Told. I'm the producer, Nicole Davis. Each week, we'll be sharing an original story from a different writer, told in their own voice. This week, we're pleased to present One Night in Rome, written and performed by Caleb Azuma Nelson. Caleb is a British Ghanaian writer and photographer living in southeast London. His first novel, Open Water, won the Costa First Novel Award and debut of the year at the British Book Awards and was a number one Times bestseller. His short story, Prey, was shortlisted for the BBC National Short Story Awards in 2020 and has recently been made into a short film that Caleb wrote and directed. His second novel, Small Worlds, was published in May 2023 to great acclaim and will be adapted for television by Brock Media, with Caleb writing the scripts. I'll be back towards the end to chat with Caleb about how this story was written from the belly, but for now, here he is reading One Night in Rome. I'll confess, I'm often a little overstimulated. At any given moment, my eyes are darting towards the glint of someone's smile, or my ears are chasing after a snippet of music coming loud from a passing car. There have been so many occasions where I find myself watching the way a tree sways in the breeze, or the rhythm of someone shuffling down the street. I'm always people watching always trying to know who people might be. There are so many occasions where I find myself distracted, again and again, by everyday moments. All this to say, in 2016, when two friends and I were planning a trip with a few European stops, each time I sat at my laptop to book a set of flights, from Seville to Rome, I found myself distracted, my attention drifting to whatever was passing in front of me. Despite my friend's insistence that the flight would run out of seats, I kept telling them, I'll get to it. I've always been a bit like this, either wholly grounded and present in a moment, or dreaming, drifting, my mind elsewhere. In this instance, I was dreaming, drifting, and by the time I came back to the ground, opening up my laptop to book tickets, the flight was sold out. I could feel the annoyance in the group chat, I'm sure in a separate thread, they were both saying something along the lines of, he's done it again. I wasn't too concerned. I would simply book the flight from the night before, stay in a hotel for a night, head to our Airbnb in the morning. It would give me an opportunity to see the city for myself, to not have my thoughts or feelings or desires filtered through the group. It would also allow me to see the city at night, which I've always thought to be when places reveal their truths. People getting off work and reaching towards loved ones or strangers, reaching towards themselves. I'd be alone for less than 24 hours. My own little adventure, I told myself. I'll confess, I'm slightly hungover the day I'm wheeling a little suitcase through Seville Airport, a dull pain gnawing at my brain which goes from bad to worse with the dull drone of the plane, the screams of a child who refuses to be comforted. By the time we land in Rome, I'm not only regretting being convinced the night before to have a few drinks, because it's never just a few, but also desperate for a nap. To be prone, flat, in a dark room, 
with no urgent need to move anywhere in the way that being in transit demands. I wheel myself through passport control and onto the train into the city centre, thinking, perhaps I'll abandon the desire to walk around the city tonight and stay inside, have food brought to the room, enjoy some quiet comfort in my own company. I'm dreaming of that beautiful, lucid drift which comes just before you fall asleep. When a bearded young man, long-limbed like me, squeezes himself into the seats opposite. He's holding a football and the basketball I carry with me everywhere in hopes of finding a court is on my lap. We both laugh at each other, holding our tiny pieces of freedom in hand. First time in Rome, he asks in English. It must be obvious. I wonder if the giveaway is my suitcase, or if there's something I'm giving off I'm unaware of. I nod. Who are you travelling with? Some friends will join me tomorrow. But tonight, it's just me, I say. Good. He gazes out of the window at the passing cityscape. Rome's not a place to travel to on your own. His eyes glow dark, not with mischief, but warning. What do you mean you can't find my booking? I'm leaning against the counter of the hotel I'm supposed to be staying at, trying to catch a glimpse of the screen the kind-faced Italian man is working from. As he clicks, 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 the headache which had been tapping at the inside of my own mind makes way for the panicked rush of my own blood, my own heartbeat pounding underneath it all. I'm clutching the sheet of paper I printed off with my booking on it, and yet, Despite me saying to check again, check again, there's no record of me having made a booking, let alone paid for one. Fine, I say, the tightness beginning to pull me down. I'll just pay for another room for tonight. The man shakes his head. We're fully booked tonight. He must see my shock and despair because he leans in saying, Between us, you'll struggle to find somewhere tonight. The local derby, a few other events. There are lots of people in town. I'll confess, this is the first moment I begin to feel a slight panic. An hour later, after wandering in and out of hotel lobbies, I find a kind-faced man is right. There's nowhere to stay. I check my watch. It's later than I anticipated, 11pm already. The city has suddenly lost its energy of possibility. I am now more concerned with making it to the morning. I decide to grab some food from a nearby pizzeria and the solution strikes me. I just head back to the station and wait out the night. There will be plug sockets and a cafe open for 24 hours and walk. There'll be some safety from the darkness I saw in the eyes of the young man on the train. I don't remember falling asleep, but then I'm woken by the tap of a boot against my own shoe. My neck is bowed, head dangling towards my knees, and my mouth is both dry and sticky. I don't know where I am. The boot taps me again. I look up at its owner, a big, surly man, with an earpiece and a forlorn gaze 
and the words, You must leave now. The station is closed now. Coming out of his mouth again and again. When I acknowledge his message with a nod, he leaves me to gather myself. I check my watch once more. It's barely 1.30 in the morning. Pressed between my legs, my little case, the basketball. I'm feeling dizzy where I sit, but I know I don't want to encounter the man with an earpiece a second time. Coming out of the station, I make a left, past a sleeping busker with his accordion still in hand, then a right, then find myself walking in a straight line down a long road. The path uneven and cobbled and loud with people drinking, perched under small awnings. The heart of the city still beating, even at this time. As I pass, I try to snatch the gaze of strangers, thinking, by some miracle, there might be someone I know or recognise. Or maybe not. Maybe some stranger will see this need in me for closeness, will beckon towards me, Invite me for a drink. Invite me to pause and rest. Invite me towards safety. But everyone is in their own worlds. Their own joyful worlds. I keep walking. As the path ends, it opens up into a larger, open space. With a fountain running quietly at centre. Onwards I go past a group of young people shining tiny lasers towards the sky, down another pathway, into a more residential area. I'm just walking. I'm just killing time. I'm just trying to ward away the panic which is edging at my mind. I'm trying to convince myself it will all be okay, that I'll make it to the morning. The night is beginning to loom and leer, Those small sounds of insignificance in the near distance are gaining some menace. Every shadow I see feels like it might come close and consume me. I'm thinking of turning back on myself when I encounter hope for the first time in hours. A makeshift basketball court in the middle of a small courtyard. The backboard a little busted, but the hoop intact, chain swinging from it. The thing I love about the sport is the presence or quiet. The world falls away as I'm trying to do something as simple as put a ball into a hoop again and again. And the only thing which matters is the next shot. I place my case underneath the hoop and begin to play. Soon, I've worked up a sweat. Soon, the tension I didn't realise I was carrying in my chest falls away. Soon, I've forgotten what time it is or where I am. I've forgotten it all, falling into a rhythm of next shot, next shot. I'm thinking, maybe I could do this until the morning, when the thrum of the moped greets me, the vehicle coming into sight shortly. It's not long before another appears, driving around the courtyard. When the third arrives, it begins to circle me. I don't wait to find out if there'll be a fourth. Outside, everything feels close. The air pressing against my skin. 
a summer sky hanging overhead. You know, when the sky doesn't quite darken and it feels like the day will never run out. That's how I feel, the day endless and unrelenting. I revisit the idea of wandering Rome streets until daybreak, but those plans are quickly undone by the wheels of my little case beginning to protest against those uneven, cobbled paths. On my fourth circle of the area around the station, my phone beeps the sound of a low battery. I lose focus for a moment, the basketball rolling into the street meeting the wheel of a passing car with a pop. The laugh I let out is joyless, and with a sigh, I perch on the curb, resigning myself to defeat. When my phone dies, I have no idea what the time is, and this disaster will stretch and stretch, and I'll find myself spiraling in this limbo of timelessness in a foreign city. That tension in my chest is back. I raise my eyes to the sky, looking for a sign, anything. That's when I spot a glimmer of yellow. Salvation in the form of two golden arches, clasped against each other. From a short distance, McDonald's beckons. I'll confess, I've had enough late night excursions to McDonald's to know You shouldn't make a late-night excursion to McDonald's. What always starts off as a good idea, perhaps for some food after a gig or a night out, ends in an enormous queue, someone being accosted, some drunken arguments, something, always something. However, on this occasion, I'm desperate. The security guard holds the door open for me. He eyes my suitcase but doesn't say anything. I make straight for the counter, and a few minutes later, holding a paper bag already being soiled by the grease of nuggets and fries, I tuck myself into one of the booths, tucking my suitcase beside me. I take a few bites of my food, but feeling the coming of sleep, pull up my hoodie in case security sees me and tries to throw me out. When I wait, the vibe has shifted. The McDonald's is buzzier, bordering on rowdy. Music bounces out of a portable speaker in the corner. A few seats away, an intense car game is taking place. A group of young people argue in that friendly, drunken way about the number of chicken nuggets they should purchase. There are two men standing in front of me, for what I assume is the spare seat in the booth opposite. Except, as I blink myself awake, I realise they're not asking to sit. They're asking for... your suitcase. Pardon? Your suitcase. We need your suitcase. I don't think so. The shorter of the two men laughs, revealing the shimmer of a few silver teeth. Is it trouble you want? I almost laugh at how absurd this night has been. You can't be serious. The suitcase, the man repeats. 
and serious. You can't have it, I say. The shorter man signals to the taller, who gives a quick look around before making his move. His hand on my case. I shift my body to protect it, place my hand on it too. The thing which I feared all night, that I've refused to admit even to myself, has arrived. The danger is no longer a threat, but a reality. The safety I've been seeking is being interrupted again. I try to steel myself for a tussle, for whatever confrontation might be arriving, but it feels like I'm scraping the bottom of the well. All night, I've been drawing from my reserves of hope, and now I've reached again to find it's empty. I'm exhausted. I'm ready to give in when I see a mirage in the near distance. That long-limbed young man from the train walking towards me, sliding himself into the booth opposite, holding the gaze of the men demanding my suitcase. I wait for their response, wondering if this will escalate. Reluctantly, they depart, and the young man looks at me, shaking his head. Rome's not a place to travel to on your own, and this place isn't for you. I'll walk you back to the station. It's closed, I say. He shakes his head again, pointing at his watch. A new day is here. Outside, daylight is pressing against the sky. We make the short walk back to the station. He catches me eyeing his football and asks where my basketball is. I shake my head, laughing and shrug. He doesn't press, but does let his football fall to the ground, passing it to me, and I pass it back. And we do this for a while, only concentrating on this back and forth, the simplicity of it. We talk a little, and he asks me where I've come from. I describe my journey from London to Spain to here, tell him of booking flights late and no hotel room. Tell him of the danger which loomed in the night, the fear in my heart. He smiles knowingly, telling me of his own journey from Senegal to Rome, coming to join his family who had already moved. The shock of the city, the way it heaves in the day but becomes something entirely different at night, where there are busy pockets, but it's mostly quiet, and that's where the danger hides in this quiet. We kick the ball between each other for a while. I'll confess, this is what I was looking for all night. Closeness, connection, safety. The tension falls away again, replaced by gratitude. Soon, we're seeing sunlight, and that's when he traps the ball dead and indicates he needs to go. We bump fists, and the young man slinks away into the new day. It's only when I'm blowing the steam off the lid of a coffee, waiting for my friends to arrive, that I realise I didn't even ask his name. Maybe I didn't need to know. I've always thought that there is some magic which doesn't need to be questioned. 
A few hours later, my friends arrive and ask how my night was. I tell them I was alone for less than 24 hours. It was pretty uneventful. I just had my own little adventure. I don't confess that I can feel some tension lingering, but I feel that well of hope filling up too, knowing that sometimes beauty can emerge from the chaos. Hi Caleb. Hello, how's it going? Good, thank you for that story. It was very beautiful and I love the way that you write. I'm going to start off by asking you about the provocation, the fact that we gave each of the writers the same one to tell us something that you've never told before. And I wonder what your initial reaction to that was and how you landed on telling this particular story. I think when I first heard that it was a story that had not been told, I panicked because I feel like so... Many of the stories that I have, I'm like very quick to tell other people about them or I'm like quick to express them. I come from quite a big family. Uh, my dad's one of nine and my mum's one of ten. And so like stories and oral storytelling has always been a really big part of, of our family tradition. And so we're always telling each other stories. And so I really had to think about something that perhaps I hadn't explicitly like told the details and nuances of. And I think this story in particular just came, just that was the thing because I, there was a level of frustration but also danger that I felt I'd almost put myself into that I don't know I'd been willing to express up until this point. Mm. I think it's a particular tension around solo travel as well, right, though, which is that you're often quite keen to show yourself having a good time in those scenarios. And so even if you told the story, you might not have told it with this particular truth. Do you feel like your experience has shifted or at least your your perception of the experience yeah. has shifted over time? Well, I think also when, when I travelled at that time, I was just much younger and a lot more perhaps a little bit more daring and and less kind of tuned into like how explicit some danger can be when you're encountering it i think the person that i was was just like you know just get through the night and it will be fine but also but in the, that instance like getting through the night actually meant encountering a lot of foreign things in a foreign city that i just wasn't you know ready for yeah, but I wonder, like, which is best, right? Because if you'd been anxious mm-hmm. about that beforehand, I don't know, like, what is the best way to approach those yeah. things? Like, in a way, having that cavalier attitude yeah. sometimes, you know, is better because yeah. otherwise you wouldn't go anywhere yeah, out of yeah. fear, right? Yeah, for sure. I'm, to the frustration of a lot of people around me, I never panic about anything. It's like, it takes a lot for me to get to a point where I might be feeling these emotions like an anxiety or a fear but like it doesn't spill into my actions like I'm always like really level and I think actually in this story in this instance there are like glimpses of moments where actually there's not a direct solution or the solution's a lot more roundabout or it's like there's a language barrier which comes in between what I might be able to get to that will bring me some safety I think that's such a big thing like when you're traveling by yourself or actually in any instance like, you're always looking for this sense of like safety and stability and in this story like I think that just keeps being interrupted each time I'm specifically reaching for it actually there's an interruption yeah I particularly felt it when your phone dies because it's like google maps is always my savior in those situations <laughs> the worst feeling <laughs> 
I know you're also a photographer as well as being a writer and I know that images are particularly powerful for you in your writing process. I'm wondering if there are any particular images that fueled this story that you are holding in your mind's eye. The McDonald's, the glint of yellow in the darkness. Just like, man, I saw that and I said, okay, we're going, we're going there. Because you can count on McDonald's to be open for 24 hours, for sure. I think also the going into the station when I first reached there versus like the next day was just this completely different experience. And actually even in the in-between, like early hours of the morning when I was told that the station is closed, I think the station closes for this very like specific part of the day so that people aren't like sleeping in there and that they also clean it. And at each instance, the vibe was just so different. When I reached, it's like really heaving and it's bustling. In the middle of the night, it's just like stragglers and people that are like really trying to stay in there. And then the next morning, it's like this, like workers and this sense of like a new day coming through. And I can really like see those those three different versions of that space. I know that also you start the story talking about overstimulation and being very easily distracted. I'm wondering if that affects your writing process at all and how you stay focused in a moment and in a story. When I'm writing, it's like the it's the times when I'm like the least distracted. Like I feel very present when I'm writing in the same way when I'm playing basketball. There is this sense of like feeling very grounded and very like wholly present in the moment. But I also know that my brain is like still overworking. And so often as I'm writing, there'll be, it's like my brain's like jumping ahead of myself. And so I find myself like scribbling sentences that I'm coming to in a few sentences time, but like my brain's like, work, 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 let's go, let's go. And so maybe that's how the, the overstimulation manifests. Like it's still jumping, but it's just doing it internally as opposed to what's going on around me. Yeah, it's almost like your brain is doing the dots and then you have to go back to like yeah. connect them yeah, and yeah, make yeah. sure it flows. You're writing very prolifically at the moment. You've mm-hmm. got a short film. You've obviously got two novels out, Small Worlds most recently, uh, short stories such as Prey. You're adapting Small Worlds mm-hmm. with Brock Media for TV. And now obviously this piece for audio. Just thinking about the audience that you're writing for and particularly how they're going to consume it. Does that inform how you write the story? I always, regardless of the medium, like I'm always trying to make sure that the emotions are centred. But inevitably depending on what the work is going to be like there's there's more of a leaning on like the visual elements or of on the all elements just trying to figure out a way in which the feelings can be best expressed in the form that's being used something like an audio piece is really interesting because despite the fact that you're hearing it you're also trying to conjure up images for an audience to sit with and things that can stay long enough while while someone's like taking that in and so that's a really it's a nice thing to be able to kind of like render images with your own voice and with sound but then also thinking about the rhythms and where the emphasis lies in the sentences and also how people are like receiving each part of of the story and making sure that it feels like there is this narrative arc that can be influenced by the rhythm of your voice too Mm-hmm. I definitely got that rhythm of relentlessness in this story and like the drifting. I felt when I heard you read it, it really got not plodding because that sounds like it's dull, you know, but like, you know, that you're just constantly being yeah, moved right. about yeah, from yeah, place to yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. That really worked. And I know that sometimes you or I read that you sometimes give yourself directives as to maybe where to write stories from. I once had a teacher that said, write from the throat, and I didn't know what to do with mm-hmm. that. But I'm wondering if you were writing this from a particular place, yeah. either bodily or cerebrally. Yeah. I think of late, my work is always coming from the belly. It always just feels like somewhere like trying to like excavate. You're trying to like get a bit deeper and find something that you wouldn't necessarily be able to express or be willing to express in your everyday. 
but make your space for in like just a little brief moment, you know? Why do you think the belly is the deepest place? It's like dense and dark and you don't really... I think a lot of people talk about the heart, but like I always feel like whenever I think about my instincts, like where the tug or the pull comes from or where anxiety manifests or where joy like emerges, like I always feel it there. And, and so that's my kind of like my go-to yeah it's funny because there's that phrase like you can wear your heart on your sleeve but mm. you never hear about wearing your belly no. on your sleeve <laughs> no but also it's like there's something very I think also there's something very interior about it like I'm very willing to share and show my heart often but there are still these parts of me that are just mine that you've never told <laughs> and what was it like reading a story aloud is that something you do for yourself in private anyway mm. when you're writing or was this quite a new thing for you I don't read aloud aloud, but I think as I'm writing, I'm always like reading in my mind's eye in a way because I'm like very aware of how a reader might take the work from the page and intentionally want to have this rhythm and these like refrains or and, and like a sense of their feeling like there can be like pauses and breaks that are quite intentional as well. And so I'm always really focused on how a rhythm might emerge in a way. I'm wondering if you feel like that there's a common theme or tether that maybe unites this body of work that you've now built for yourself. It's a sense of vulnerability, even if it's in glimpses. I'm always trying to make space for honesty as well, for like, even if it's something difficult to wrangle with, I'm, how do I make space for myself or my characters or people I'm representing to come honestly and wholly in this full spectrum of emotions that they might be experiencing? Amazing. Caleb, thank you so much for the story and coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to work with you. Thank you for having me. This episode of Never Told was produced by me, Nicole Davis. Our executive producer is Sarah Brocklehurst. Our production assistant and assistant story editor is Amy Yeo. Our sound designer and mixer is Tom Wally. Our artwork is designed by Bette Norris. That's our show and our series for today. You can now go back and listen to the entire anthology featuring stories from Harry Trevaldwin, Joanne Lau, Emma Jane Unsworth, Deborah Haywood, Thaddea Graham, Esther Smith and Zing Seng, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or do it the old fashioned way and recommend Never Told to a Friend and watch this space for more storytelling anthologies from Brock Media. Thank you.